This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Soybeans can get a lot of different diseases. Many of them look similar and many of them start beneath the ground on the roots where it is hard to see what is going on. We are getting into the season where soybean diseases become more apparent as certain parts of the field aren't canoping like everything else. However, some diseases start right at germination and some don't take off until pot filling. In this report, we are going to cover a few of the more common diseases that can infect soybeans. Going in order of timing of when the soybeans are infected, we could start off with the seedling diseases Epithium and Reticondria. These diseases survive in commonly flooded soils that kill the seedling before it has very many leaves. It operates by zoospores, which are spores that could swim, seek out, and infect young seedlings. The best way to defend against these diseases is a seed treatment. Fasarium root rot is similar to Pythium in that it can kill very young plants and is a fungus that lives in the soil from year to year. However, Fasarium is a very common disease that can infect soybeans, either as seedlings or as bigger plants later on, and also doesn't fully kill the plant. Fasarium like cool wet soils in the early season, but hot dry conditions later on can show the symptoms with scorched upper leaves and yellowing lower leaves. Seed treatment can help prevent Fusarium infection during germination and in early growth. Photophoria is a fungal disease that can affect soybeans at any stage from seedling to pot filling. This disease can be seen in the lower stem of the soybean as it turns dark brown. Eventually, this chokes off the upper plant causing stunting and dying leaves. This fungus also likes wet soil, but is better managed with resistant varietal selection, though seed treatment can have some limited help. Charcoal rot is different from all the others, and that is worse in the dry years rather than the wet ones. Also, corn is a host of the disease, so soybean crop rotation won't help reduce its prevalence. Charcoal rot infection starts early in the growing season, but isn't seen until flowering. Charcoal rot causes the lower stem to turn a light gray like charcoal and covers it in tiny black spots that are the fungal bodies releasing spores. Frog eye leaf spot and septora brown spot are full of diseases. Frog eye leaf spot can cause serious yield loss when conditions are right, with lots of small circular spots with brown edges. Frog eye can get onto the soybean pods as well. Septora is very common, but doesn't always cause a yield loss. This disease causes irregular brown lesions that start in the lower canopy and work upward during the growing season. Yield loss depends on how favorable the conditions are now far up the canopy the fungus gets during grain fill. Most leaf diseases prefer cooler summer temperatures with plenty of humidity. If you have any questions about soybean diseases or need me to come out and take a look at the problem areas in your field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. A vaccination program can have a significant impact on a herd or flock, both financially and in condition. We talked last week about keeping these immunizations viable when going from the retailer to the farm. This week, Let's dive into the transition of on-farm storage to the animal processing site. Proper planning will assure efficacy and result in immunized livestock. Vaccines should be transported to the working facility in a rigid-sided cooler that's been pre-cooled. 
it will take about an hour for a large cooler at room temperature to reach the goal of 35 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit with ice packs. Repeatedly opening the holding cooler can cause temperature changes, so a smaller, pre-cooled container should be available to hold vaccines during animal processing. The vaccine bottle shouldn't directly contact the ice pack. Wrap it with packing paper, bubble wrap, or something similar. Direct contact can cause cold spots. If needed, the temperature in an insulated container can be adjusted with hot packs in cold weather to stay between 35 and 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Once livestock are ready, fix the amount of vaccine you estimate can be used within an hour. This amount will depend on the processing being done. Castrating and dehorning take longer than giving pre-breeding vaccines. Once mixed, a modified live virus immunization will remain viable for two hours if it's kept cool and out of sunlight. Cutting the amount mixed for one hour ensures that the vaccine stays useful since we all know that working livestock and unexpected delays go hand in hand. Loaded syringes should be stored in a cool, dark place between animals. Setting them on a table or tailgate will cause the vaccine in the barrel to warm up and UV light will cause damage. Coolers with openings or slots can be purchased or made. The purpose of this syringe cooler is to maintain the gold temperature and protect from sunlight. When filling a syringe, always use a clean needle to go into the bottle, not one that's been used for injecting an animal. Bacteria and debris on the surface of a needle can be transferred. Contamination of a modified live virus can inactivate the vaccine. Pollution of a killed vaccine risks infection at the injection site, hindering immune response and causing abscesses. It's important to sanitize syringes after use. Syringes used for killed vaccines can be cleaned with soaps or mild disinfectants in hot water. Be sure to rinse all the residue away. Soaps and disinfectants can kill or deactivate a modified live virus and should be avoided. These syringes can be sanitized using hot or boiling water. Vaccines that have undergone temperature cycles above or below the recommended temperature will have reduced efficacy and may even be completely worthless due to deactivation. Even worse, these could be fatal in certain situations. Don't waste your money by not taking care of your vaccines. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. There are three different types of bees in a honey beehive, worker, drone, and queen. Each has its own important roles and performs specific duties in a bee colony. The queen bee can be recognized by her abdomen, which is usually smooth and elongated, extending well beyond her folded wings. Her function in the hive is one of production. She is normally the only reproductive female in the colony. Egg laying begins in early spring, initiated when the first fresh pollen is brought home by the worker bees. Egg production will continue until fall or as long as pollen is available. Worker bees are the smallest of the bee casts, 
but are by far the most numerous. All workers are female and normally incapable of reproduction. They are unable to mate, but in a hopelessly queenless colony, workers may begin to lay unfertilized eggs, which develop into drones. Workers do all of the necessary tasks within a colony, including they secrete the wax used in the hive and form it into honeycombs. They forage for all the nectar and pollen brought into the hive and transform the nectar into honey. They produce royal jelly to feed to the queen and young larvae. They also tend to the needs of the larvae and queens. They cap the cells of mature larvae for pupation and remove debris and dead bees from the hive. Worker bees defend the hive against intruders and maintain optimal conditions by heating, cooling, and ventilating the hive. Workers have well-developed compound eyes on the sides of their heads and three simple eyes at the vertex. Their tongue is well-developed and elongated for taking up nectar from flowers. Drone bees are male honeybees. The only function of a drone is to fertilize a young queen bee. They are visibly larger and stouter than worker bees. They possess large distinctive eyes that meet on the top of their heads and have antennae slightly longer than the worker or queen bees. Their mouth parts are generally reduced. Drones develop from unfertilized eggs and drone cells are visibly larger than those of worker bees. Drones do not tend the brood, produce wax, or collect pollen or nectar. They will feed themselves directly from honey cells in the hive or bake food from the worker bees. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave and with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Determining whether a tree in your landscape might be a hazard is incredibly important for protecting people and property in a tree's vicinity. Hazard trees fall into two categories, decaying trees and diseased trees. While not always mutually exclusive, decaying trees will often be the result of environmental damage such as lightning strikes, excessive winds, improper pruning, or insect damage. Decaying trees are far more likely than diseased trees to become hazardous. There are fewer diseases that will outright kill trees, and when they do, they rarely cause structural issues. However, it is still important to identify and solve any disease issues to reduce stress on the tree. Disease pressure weakens a tree and makes it more likely to fail in environmentally damaging conditions. It is crucial to scout regularly for disease and decay in any landscape trees near houses, power lines, roads, or other infrastructure. When scouting, there are two primary warning signs of issues that should be resolved. The first is dieback in part or all of the tree canopy. This could be caused by several problems, but is often most caused by damage to the branches. If any damage is noticed, it should be pruned out. If left unpruned, decay can enter the tree. A clean prune initiates the tree's immune response and lowers the risk of further problems. 
The other common problem that can cause trees to become hazards is holes in the trunk. These provide a direct opening into the wood where decay can enter and eat away at the trunk, causing stability issues. Any decay should be closely monitored for progression through the tree to ensure there is still enough of the trunk to guarantee stability. If tree stability cannot be guaranteed, the tree should be removed. The key to getting strong trees lies in proper selection and early care. When choosing trees at a nursery or garden center, select ones with a strong central leader. Known as X-Current Growth, this growth is less likely to suffer architectural damage like splits or cracks. However, if you cannot find a tree you want to plant with a strong central leader, you will almost always be able to train a tree into a central leader with intentional and consistent pruning. Once purchased and planted, prune out any substantial limbs that grow upright, leaving only one to develop into the main trunk. This will push any split points where the tree develops decurrent growth higher, and it will decrease the chance of total tree loss in storms or strong winds. Note that if decurrent growth begins at the base of the tree, you will not be able to prune this out. However, this kind of decurrent growth only occurs on smaller ornamental trees. Larger shade trees will grow into excurrent trees with pre-purchased selection and proper pruning. If you have older trees with structural issues, pruning by a tree service will help maintain canopy shape and health, preventing your mature trees from potentially becoming hazardous. For more information on how to determine hazardous trees in your landscape, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.